We're going to be in John, or I'm sorry, John, Luke chapter 6. I did preach the first service, I promise. Luke chapter 6, we're going to be in verses uh, 1 through 11. If you've got a Bible, I encourage you to turn there. 861, it's on page 861 and the Bible's in the chair. If you don't have your own Bible, we'd encourage you to take that. Begin highlighting, underlining, making notes in it, and read it. Let God's Word do its work in you. You can also follow along on the Version app on our live event. Uh, we, we do this. We, we, we try to find ways for you to get into the Word. And this is, I mean, we try a number of ways because we believe it works. And so I would just encourage you to take advantage of at least one of those. As you're getting kind of set in Luke chapter 6, verse 1 through 11, let me just kind of set the stage for you. Jesus is embroiled in the midst of controversy and conflict. We saw it begin when he uh, forgave a man's sins. He was going to heal his paralysis, and, and in so doing, he says, your sins are forgiven, and the teachers of the law, the ones that the, the, the Pharisees and the scribes that had come to test him were furious or they were frustrated over it. They were angry about it. And, and then he didn't just stop there saying, hey, I can forgive sins here. I have that authority. He then proceeded to get up and walk out of the house and, and call a man who they deemed a sinner to follow him. And that bothered them. But more than just call this man to follow him, he and his disciples actually attended this man's party. This man was Matthew. He was called Levi and Luke and uh, by, by Luke, but his name is also Matthew. You know him as the, the gospel writer Matthew. Matthew threw a party, and Jesus and his disciples actually went to this man's party and hung out and ate and drank with, with sinners and tax collectors. He actually did that, and this it, it infuriated them even further. See, these were people that they deemed unworthy. These were people that didn't follow the religious practice as well as these Pharisees and scribes did. These were people that they deemed unworthy to eat with them. And if Jesus was who he said he was, they were unworthy to eat with a man like Jesus. Unless, unless Jesus was like them. See, the interest and the excitement that surrounded Jesus' ministry, his public ministry, quickly turned to skepticism because he was eating and drinking with the likes of tax collectors and sinners because he was doing things that only God had authority to do because he was living in ways that the Pharisees and the scribes deemed sinful. So it turned to skepticism to the point that everything he did was under the microscope. They were watching him Closely, and you'll actually get, a, get, get, get an example of that, an illustration of that in the text today. But that's the atmosphere. There's tension, there's conflict, and yet Jesus is still teaching. He's boldly and courageously calling them back to see the truth. And so let's just read it. Luke chapter 6, verses 1 through 11. I'll stop along the way and point a couple of things out just for you to, to highlight, to see. On a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some Pharisees said, why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And I'll just point this out. Jesus and his disciples are walking through a field. They're not in the city. They're not not in a temple. They're not in a synagogue. They're in the field, and there's people out there watching to see what he's doing, paying attention to what he and his disciples are doing. It's like, almost like maybe they were hiding in the wheat, you know, and he, his disciples pick it and they jump out. What are you doing? And Jesus answered them. Have you read, have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, the son of man is the Lord of the Sabbath. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. This was his practice. This is what Jesus did. Sabbath day came, Friday evening to Saturday evening. That was the Sabbath in the Jewish tradition. Friday evening comes, they gather in the synagogue for the Sabbath meeting, and he is there and he teaches. This was a regular practice. We've seen it all the way through Luke to this point. And he is teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so they might find a reason to accuse him. They weren't there to worship anymore. 
They were there to accuse Jesus. They were watching. They weren't listening to what was being taught. They weren't, they weren't engaging with God in their Sabbath uh, meeting. They were watching Jesus, waiting for an opportunity to accuse him. But he knew their heart, hearts, is verse 8, but he knew their hearts, and he said to the man with the withered hand, come and stand here. And he rose and stood there, and Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or do harm, or save life or to destroy it? They're there to test Jesus. They're there to catch him, and he turns the test around, and he gives them these questions. After looking around at them in this moment of awkward silence, after looking around at them all, he said to him, stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury and disgust with one another what they might do to Jesus. They were angry because a man got healed. Probably says more about them than it does about Jesus. The Sabbath was extremely important to them. To the Jews, to the Pharisees and the scribes, it was vitally important to their faith, to the practice of their religion. And it should have been. They were right to prioritize it in their life. God had given it to them in the Ten Commandments. He had spoken to them when they entered into covenant with them. He gave it to them as the fourth commandment, the the central tenets of their practice. It, It should have been important to them. If you read in Exodus 31... It talks about what happens or what people deserve when they break Sabbath law. It says that if a a person breaks the Sabbath law, they are to be cut off from their people and killed. That's that's a steep concept. I mean, that's a high price to pay. So it's right that they took it seriously. It's right that they, God obviously took it seriously. But here's the problem. They took it so seriously that they devised a way for them to live without ever coming close to breaking the the rules or the laws of the Sabbath by establishing their own set of rules. And then they began to justify themselves and prove themselves righteous by following their own set of rules. Basically, the law prohibited them from doing any work on the Sabbath. That, That was what they were called to. Do not work on the Sabbath. Work stops on the Sabbath. You're supposed to rest on that day. You're supposed to commit that day to the Lord. There were a couple of specific commands that were established in the time that they were in the desert. First was they weren't to go out of their house and gather manna on the Sabbath. So five days a week, they were to gather enough for that day. So Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, they were supposed to go out in the morning and gather the manna just enough for that day. If they gathered more than enough for that day, it would it, it would rot. They would wake up the next morning and, that's, and, and that manna would be rotted. There would be worms in it. It would stink. <clears throat> but on the Sabbath, they were supposed to gather enough for two days. And what they found was they would gather enough for two days on Friday morning before the Sabbath began. Uh, they would go out and they would gather enough manna uh, for Friday and Saturday. And when they wake up Saturday morning, that manna that they had gathered on Friday morning was still Good. God had preserved it. God had made sure that they were going to have food for that day. They were trusting God and resting in that trust that they were going to be provided for while they rested. That was the first specific command they were given. The other command that they were given specifically was that they weren't to light a fire. They weren't to light fires in their homes. And that's about as specific as it got. That's about as, as detailed as the law was. Do not work on that day. And here's a couple of specific things you're not supposed to do. But here's what they did. To ensure they didn't drive off the cliff of God's law, they built guardrails. And then they prioritized those guardrails as if they, were, as if they had become the cliff. And it wasn't enough for them just to, just to obey God's commands, not just enough for them to, to, do the right, to, to do the things he'd called them to. They began to devise a law or a set of rules, a, sa- a set of Sabbath do's and don'ts, mostly don'ts, that if anyone broke, they would, they would look down on. They would, they, would, they would treat them poorly. I'm going to just give you some examples of this. This is from John MacArthur's commentary. He's one of the ones that gave the most extensive list. But I just wanted to share with you some of the rules, some of the laws that they were not to disobey according to their own standard. Traveling more than 3,000 feet from home was forbidden. 
If one had placed food at the 3,000-foot point before the Sabbath, that point would then be considered a home since there was food there and allow another 3,000 feet of travel. So essentially, if they set enough food out, they might be able to go, you know, 6,000 feet or so, and maybe even further. Similarly, a piece of wood or a rope placed across the end of a narrow street or alley constituted a doorway. That could then be considered the front door of one's house and permit the 3,000 feet of travel to begin there. So even today, even today in neighborhoods, they'll build walls around uh, Jewish people's houses so that as they come to the gate of that wall or to the door in that wall, that's where their 3,000 feet begins. They can actually travel all around inside the walls of this neighborhood without having to worry about their distance at all so long as the wall is intact and so long as they have it in place. And it still happens today. There were also regulations about carrying items. Something lifted in a public place could only be set down in a private place and vice versa. So you couldn't pick something up in public and set it down in public. An object tossed into the air could be caught with the same hand, but if it was caught with the other hand, it would be a Sabbath violation. If a person reached out to pick up food when the Sabbath began, the food had to be dropped. To bring the arm back while holding the food would be to carry a burden on the Sabbath. And it was forbidden to carry anything heavier than a dried fig. I, I don't know if you've ever held a dried fig in your hand. It's pretty, pretty light. They're not that heavy to begin with. You take the water out of it, it's pretty light. Although something weighing half as much could be carried two times. A tailor could not carry his needle, a scribe his pen, or a student his books. Only enough ink to write two letters of the alphabet could be carried. A letter could not be sent, not even with a non-Jew. Clothes could not be examined or shaken out before putting them on because an insect might be killed in the process, which would be work. No fire could be lit or put out. Cold water could be poured into hot water, but not, or I'm sorry, cold water could be poured into warm water, but not warm into cold. An egg could, be, could not be cooked not even by placing it in the hot sand during the summer. Nothing could be sold or bought. Bathing was forbidden, lest water be spilled on the floor and, and, and wash it. Moving a chair was not allowed, since it might make a rut in a dirt floor, which was too much like plowing. Women were forbidden to look in the mirror, since, they saw, since if they saw a white hair, they might be tempted to pull it out. I don't guess men had that problem then. I don't know. Other forbidden things included sowing, plowing, reaping, binding sheaves, threshing, winnowing, grinding, kneading, baking, shearing, washing, beating, dyeing, or spinning wool, or tying and untying a knot, catching, killing, or skinning a deer, salting its meat, or preparing its skin. And this is the thing, as complicated as this sounds, we're just touching the tip of the iceberg. The laws that they had been given, the rules that they established were lengthy and complex, and they became a burden that was, was a weight too heavy to carry. And, and, and still today, they're, they're, they're still living by these rules and, in fact, finding ways to, to work around these rules. Last week, I was at the T4G conference in Louisville, Kentucky, and as I was leaving the hotel that we stayed in, as we were checking out, I, was, I climbed onto the elevator, and it just so happened that there was two guys in the, in, in the uh, elevator talking about a, sha- a sh- Shabbat elevator. It's a Sabbath elevator. I was like, I never heard of this. An elevator meant just for the Sabbath. And I'm like, what, what in the world? Is-? I asked, what is this? And, and he explained it to me. I didn't believe him, so I had to go look it up. And I found out way more information than I really thought I needed to know. But it's still pretty interesting. I thought I'd share it with you. You'll be as educated as I about Sabbath elevators. So it is, a, it is a violation of the Sabbath to push a button to cause electricity to flow or to cease, stop the flow of electricity on the Sabbath. So in Israel, to avoid breaking the Sabbath, they program elevators to stop at every floor so that no one has to push a button. That means if you're trying to go to the fifth floor and you're on the first floor, that means you're going to stop at the second, third, and fourth before you get to the fifth, and you don't have to do anything but climb on. In Places that have more than one elevator to expedite the process, they will set one elevator to stop at every other floor, like every odd floor, and one elevator to stop at every even floor. So if you need to go to the fifth floor, you get on the odd elevator. If you want to go to the sixth floor, you go to the even elevator, and you only have to stop half as many times. 
And he shared that story about experiencing that. And we all, you know, we got a chuckle out of it. It's not necessarily funny. It's really kind of sad. But then his friend decided to share a story about a time he was in Israel. While he was there, he was sitting in the lobby of a hotel with another pastor. And they were talking back and forth. I don't, he didn't really say what it was about. But they were talking back and forth. And a woman came to them from her room, came to the lobby and asked him to go to her room and shut off her light because it was a sin for her to flip the switch on the Sabbath. And it struck me when he told that story. I mean, he told that story kind of in jest, but it struck me the irony of the situation. The amount of energy that she expended to walk from her room, climb on the Sabbath elevator, go to the lobby, even though she never pushed a button, was still greater than it would take for her to just flip a switch. But the irony doesn't stop there because the reality is is it's a sin for her to flip the switch on the Sabbath. She knows it's a sin and she's okay with not doing it herself but she has, and she has no problem asking a Gentile to come and sin for her. Hey, it's wrong for me to do this but since you're already outside the covenant and condemned to hell, why don't you just come heap on the... That's, but that's it. Here's, here, here's the thing. It's easy to talk about Sabbath rules and make fun of other people when it's not us to be made fun of, right? But are we not as guilty of these things as others? Oh, surely no one in this church is, but just a few years ago, it's not been very long ago, there was this thing called Worship Wars. And if you played anything other than a piano and an organ in church, you must be of Satan. The the drums are the devil's instrument. A guitar for crying out loud? can't play that in church. There's a lot of churches that if I went into to preach and had my shirt untucked and didn't wear a tie and a jacket, I would be thrown out. I didn't share with this with the first service. It dawned on me after I preached that there was a point where I preached at this little church out. It's not too far from here. Uh, I preached there and, and they didn't have a pastor, so I was just going to fill in it on an interim basis. I preached there one week. I at that point, I was preaching out of the NIV, and they seemed to appreciate the sermon, but I got a call the next week or during the middle of the week, and they said, we'd love for you to come back. We'd love for you to fill in as our interim pastor, but, but we need to ask something of you. I was like, okay, what is it? We need you to preach out of the KJV. We know those other versions are okay, but this is really God's word. We make all kinds of rules and demand that people live by them. Well, I was legalistic enough not to go back because I wasn't about to preach out of the KJV. The truth is, is that all of these rules aren't necessarily bad. It's not wrong to make some rules, to, to set up some guardrails to keep us from driving off of cliffs. I make rules about the movies I watch, about the things I look at on the internet. I I set up guardrails so that I don't drive off of a cliff. I have accountability software on my computer. If I go and look at something that is 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 uh, sinful or unbecoming of, is not good for me to look at anything pornographic or sexual in nature. It sends an email to my wife to let her know I looked at it. Well, that takes all the choice out of it. I'm free not to not to be tempted by that. But it becomes a legalistic, it becomes a law when I begin to say that you must, to be righteous, you must put the same software on your computer. There's movies that I don't watch. I'm just not going to watch them. If, if, if I read what's in them and I see that, you know, there's certain things in them, it's not that, I, not that I'm going to look bad at, down on you if you watch them. It's just there are things, I have places I don't want to go, ways that I don't, I, I just don't want my mind entering into. And so there's R-rated movies that I won't watch. There's even PG-13 movies. I know the people that are in them and the movies that they make and if, if I'm certain that they're just going to be raunchy movies, I'm not going to watch them. So you can ask me, did you go see them? No, I didn't. I won't know. And, and don't encourage me to go watch them because I don't want to. But I'm not going to set this rule for you because that's a, that's a, that becomes a legalistic standard. But for me, these are things that protect me and keep me from jumping off the cliff of God's law, of God's command. You see the difference between us obeying God's laws, obeying God's commands and legalism is that one comes from God and one is derived from us. 
Legalism is about taking God's law and saying that I'm going to become righteous enough, or become righteous by obeying it. I'm going to make myself righteous and I'm going to obey it perfectly. You can't do it. No one can. We are fallen, broken, sinful people. We are not made righteous by our obedience. We obey because we've been made righteous. But we take His law and become self-righteous by it, or we create our own rules and demand everybody else live exactly like we do. That is legalism. We will not do that. However, we will not step back from God's command and say it is, it is sin. It is sin to live in sexual immorality. It is sin to, to uh, murder. It is sin to commit adultery. It is sin to steal. Those are, that's not legalistic. That's God honoring. He's the one that said it. It's only legalistic when we look to it for our righteousness. It's only legalistic when we, when we set up our guardrails to keep us from driving off of those cliffs. And then we begin to apply our guardrails to everyone's life. When we begin to prioritize our guardrails, that's exactly what had begun to happen. That's exactly what happened when Jesus' disciples ate these grain, this grain from the field. See, the point is that the Jewish people had taken the Sabbath to this, to this extent. They had taken it to this place. And they took it so seriously that they began to look to their observance of the Sabbath as their source of righteousness. And they had set up all of these rules and began to demand everyone else obey them. So by picking the grain, these Pharisees and these scribes, they looked at Jesus' disciples by picking the grain and they determined that they were reaping. Like they were, they're out in the field reaping. They, they picked a few grains off of, the, off of the stalk and they're saying they're reaping. They, that's, that's, it's, it's totally different than reaping. Reaping is going in with a sickle. That would have been illegal for them to do just for the sake that it belonged to someone else, but it was completely fine for them to go through and grab something off and eat. That was actually legal. That was actually a, 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 encouraged. So long as they didn't bring baskets into a grape vineyard or, or a sickle into someone's wheat field, they could pick off and eat what they could. Completely okay. It's totally different than reaping. But by rubbing the wheat in their hands so that it, it, it removed the husk and then enabled them to have just the grain, by, by doing that, it was, it was paramount. It was the same as threshing and winnowing. Again, Sabbath day violations according to the fair cycle rules. By chewing the food, by mashing it between their teeth, you know, we have to do that to eat food. We were designed that way. They were preparing it. They were making flour out of it. They were preparing it, making it ready to be baked in an oven. Every mouthful, there were four Sabbath rules, four pharisaical laws that, that they were calling Jesus and his disciples on. Jesus wasn't about to stand for it. He wasn't going to bow to their legalism. He wasn't going to bow to their rules. And, but, but rather than immediately take them to the place and confronting them with their legalism, he, just, he showed them from their own scripture that what he was doing wasn't wrong. He points them to David. He says, don't you remember David? Haven't you read about David? Now, you can go and read it for yourself at some point. It's 1 Samuel 21. But let me just give you some bullet points of what happened in this event that he is referring to. 1 Samuel 21 gives us this account. David has already been anointed king. He has been chosen by God as the replacement for Saul. Saul is still sitting on the throne, and he has a son named Jonathan that he wants to take his place, but he already knows that Jonathan won't replace him, that David is, and Saul is jealous, and he is angry. So he determines that he's going to kill David. Jonathan, his son, helps David escape. David flees, and some people follow him. On the way, they're, out, they're headed out of town so fast that they don't take time to pack up their tents and their camping gear and all their, all their pack food. They didn't do that. Now, on the way out, there's, they got, they got to get something. They've got to have food. They've got to have sustenance. And so they stop at the tabernacle. The tabernacle was the, was the mobile temple, essentially. The temple had not been built yet. The tabernacle was the place where God's people gathered to worship God before the temple was built. And that's where, that's where these special loaves, the bread of presence, were kept. They were kept on a table. They were stacked in a certain way. There's all kinds of rules about this. There were certain things that were to be done. And this bread of presence was representative of God's presence with his people. 
because it was holy bread, because it was consecrated, it was purposeful and used in the serving of, of religion, there was a special way that it was to be used. And only priests, once it was done, like, like it was put there on the Sabbath, and it was kept there till the following Sabbath, and on the next Sabbath it was replaced. And once it was replaced, the stuff that was removed and replaced, or the, the, stu- the, the bread loaves that were removed could be eaten by the priests, and the priests would be able to eat it, but nobody but the priests were supposed to eat it according to the ceremonial law. However, David shows up, and Ahimelech, who was the priest that was there, sees that David is hungry. He sees that David's men are hungry, and he says, you know what? More important than this ritual, more important than the ceremony, is their need. Mercy is greater than sacrifice. Compassion is more important than ritual. Human need trumps our rituals and religious practice. And so Ahimelech, the priest, the, the priest that, that's standing before God and, 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 and acting as a liaison between God and man says, all I have is the bread of presence, but because your need is so important, here it is. He did ask them. He did have a qualification. He did ask, are you holy? Have you kept yourself from women? Have you been pure. And, and David's like, yes, we're, we're pure as we stand before God. We are pure. And so because of that profession of purity, Ahimelech had no problem giving up the bread and they ate it. And Jesus refers to this because if David could do it, why couldn't he? If the law was trumped because of compassion and, and mercy in the case of David, why wouldn't it be in the case of Jesus? More importantly, why wouldn't man-made religion, man-made ritual, man, something that we derived and not God derived, why wouldn't that be trumped for mercy? In fact, there's a really cool parallel here that's happening, and I don't know if you, if you caught on. David and his men were in need. They needed compassion. David, the anointed king, and those following him needed help. Jesus, the anointed king, and his men hungry and in need. If Jesus, if David could do it, certainly Jesus could do it. And if they didn't agree with that, then he called them on that as well because the very next words out of his mouth put them in their place. The Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. You might talk about David, but I am the Lord of of the Sabbath. He pulls from this title, this, this, this messianic title from the, from the book of Daniel. He pulls it, applies it to himself, and then says, the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. I am the Lord of rest. I am the supreme authority over this day. Who are you to determine what I can and can't do? If it was okay for David, it's certainly okay for me because I am the ruler of this day. But this is not just a claim to authority. This is a a call to a divine identity. See, the Sabbath was established by God in creation. He created in six days and on the seventh day he rested. And he set that up as the pattern for the Sabbath. He set that up for the pattern of life for all people. We were given work in creation and we were given rest in creation. There's this beautiful balance between the two. He set the pattern for it. But then man and woman sin. They rebel against God. They go their own way. They strive to be their own gods. They do their own thing. And in God's curse comes enmity, strife, toil, and pain without rest. It's it's not talked about often. But in the middle of his curse, he says nothing. In the middle of his curse, he says nothing about rest, trouble, toil, pain, and suffering, enmity. It's difficult. And the Israelites, they came to know that firsthand as they, as they began to live in Egypt and then were oppressed by Egypt and treated as slaves and they worked seven days a week under the oppression and rules of the Egyptians. And they cried out, for relief. They longed for rest. So God comes to them. He promises them rest. He 
he sends Moses in, and he leads them out, and he gathers them to the, to the base of Mount Sinai, and he gives them the law. And in the law, God commanded the Sabbath. See, this was not a burden to place on people. It was a gift to them. It was an act of his grace for them. I'm giving you this command that you might enjoy the rest you so long for. I'm giving you relief from the curse in my command. God established it in creation. God commanded it as in the Sabbath in the law. And He's the one that ruled over it. Now here comes Jesus onto the scene affirming the Sabbath and saying, I'm the one who owns it. It is mine. I'm the one who has authority to say what is and isn't on the Sabbath. I'm the one who determines what's right and wrong. From this, Luke moves on to prove this incident. He just shows us that Jesus is what he claims to be. He goes on in verse 6 that there's another Sabbath. We don't know that it follows exactly. We don't know that it was the very next one. We just know it's another Sabbath, another day. Jesus goes into the synagogue. He is teaching and they're not listening. They're looking to catch him. And he sees a man with a withered hand, and they're hoping. It's even possible. Who knows? It's even possible. Well, they brought the man with the withered hand, simply just hoping that Jesus would do something that they could call him on it. And Jesus sees him and has mercy on him. He says, come. Come to me. Come up here. Stretch out your hand. In the process, he challenges them. He tests them, and obviously they fail. They fail miserably. Is it wrong? Is, is it right to do merciful things? Is it wrong to, to give life? These are good things. But he doesn't leave any gray area. He doesn't leave any room for, 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 for a middle ground. It's either you're doing mercy or you're doing harm. You're either saving life or you're destroying it. So sit there and do nothing is, is the same as, as, as being harmful to this man. And in the midst of this awkward silence where he just looks at them. Let them rest in it. Is it wrong to do good? Isn't it right to be merciful? He looks at the man with no concern for what they think and he says, stretch out your arm." We don't know how long this man had suffered with the condition. We don't know how withered his hand was. We just know it was withered and unproductive. It was useless to him. And the man stretches out his hand, and he has power to use it again. He becomes a productive part of his body. And he's the only one in the room celebrating. And they get furious because they've missed the Messiah. They missed the point of him giving rest on the Sabbath. They didn't see him as a Lord at all. They saw him as one who should be condemned, and they sought to figure out what can we do about Jesus, brothers and sisters, so that you do not miss the Messiah, so that you do not miss the point of the Sabbath. Let me give you just quickly some points of application. Because Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath, he is the Lord of everyone and everything on every day. 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year, without question, he is always Lord. He is always in supreme authority. He is always the one that determines right from wrong. He is always sitting in a place and position that he looks down on everything and everyone on every day. But brothers and sisters, this is not to be misunderstood. We must remember that God does not simply wield his authority as a judge. He does. But for those that are his, he wields it as a father. It's a drastically different perspective. Drastically different places on the spectrum, positions on the spectrum. Let me just share with you Romans 8, 28 through 30. And we know, Paul speaking with confidence, we know for those who love God, all things work together for good. Don't, 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 don't let me miss this, but... In the context of Romans chapter 8, he has already talked about having been given a spirit 
of sonship by which we call Abba, Father. All things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Do you get this? I mean, you hear it? We are brothers and sisters to the Lord of the Sabbath, the one who sits in authority over this day, the one who rules 24-7, 365. We are his brothers and sisters. He is the firstborn among many of us. This is us stepping into this beautiful authority and Him using now this authority for our good. It's not a promise that only good things will happen. Don't misunderstand. It's a promise that all things that happen will be used for your good, that you will be conformed to the image of Christ. See, now, even in the difficulty, even in the difficulty, it's not simply to punish or bring consequence for our failures. It's used as discipline. He goes on, those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, also glorified. He is making us look like Jesus. And there will come a point where all things that have happened to us, every circumstance and situation has been used to to hone us, to, to shape us, to mold us, to sand us down and polish us up so that the reflection of our Savior, the Lord of the Sabbath, reflects off of us and shines out from us. This is the work that he's come to do. This is why he's the Lord of the Sabbath and why it's so important for us to find him the Lord of the Sabbath because he expresses his authority for our good and his glory. Because Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath, he is the Lord of everyone, everything on every day. Because Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath, we find our rest in him. We're so busy looking for the right set of circumstances, looking for the right events, looking for the right things to happen. Brothers and sisters, don't miss this. Our rest is in Christ. We rest in Christ by trusting Christ. He justifies us, just like he did for the disciples that day in the the grain field as the Pharisees jump out and bring their man-made rules and like, hey, you're sinners. Jesus doesn't let that accusation stand. There's going to come a day we're all going to stand in this eternal courtroom, this this courtroom before God. And Jesus is going to say they are innocent. You don't have to work for your innocence, your righteousness anymore. That only is yours by trusting him. We are justified by faith alone. He justifies us. He provides for us. And it's not like the man. It's not like we just wake up in the morning and the food's sitting out there and we just go gather it up. It'd be great if that's, if it's that simple. I mean, who wouldn't want that, right? I mean, the food's on the doorstep. I'll just go out and grab it. We'll be all right for the rest of the day. But like that man whose arm was withered, God made him productive. He makes our efforts fruitful. He makes our efforts productive. And yeah, the Bible says a man doesn't work, a man doesn't eat. But as we work, we can trust that he is providing what we need. So yes, we go out and we work. We work hard. We rest well in the fact that knowing that I'm not the one that's putting food on my table, God in heaven puts the food on his table. And we make it a practice in our house to to thank him for it. Again, I'm not, I'm not trying to put any legalistic standard on you. If you didn't, you didn't pray today, boy, you're, that's not the intent. But what a blessing. We work hard and God provides for us. Maybe he doesn't provide all we want, but he makes sure his children have what they need. He justifies us. He provides for us. He protects us. It's by his authority and by his power that all things are allowed or caused to happen. There's nothing that happens that's just happenstance or coincidence in your life. There is nothing that he has lost sight of or overlooked. He is not, it's not like something going on in your life and he doesn't know about it. He has allowed it for his 
purpose for your good and His glory that you might be made, that you might be conformed into the image of His sons. You are in His hands and there's nothing that gets into you. There's nothing that touches you that He doesn't let touch you. So we rest as we trust Him in His justification. We rest as, we, as, as we're able to quit working for it. We rest as He provides for us. And as we work, we recognize the weight of provision doesn't rest on us. He's got us. And we rest as we trust Him because He is protecting us. There is nothing that befalls us, no circumstance that arises that He is not allowing for our good. We can rest. We can quit worrying. We can fretting. We can quit trying to control every little thing that happens in our life. And we can rest in His sovereign power. We rest in Christ by seeking our identity in Christ. We work so hard to make sure people know who we are. We build these identities out of titles. Like we've got to make sure, you know, I, I, I tease a friend of mine. He's, he's a, a minister at LifePoint, Lane Harrison. He just finished his doctorate degree. And, and I mean, that's an achievement. Don't, don't misunderstand what I'm about to say. It is an achievement, but I like to tease him because, because now, you know, I'm like, I'm making sure everybody's calling you doctor now, huh? And he's not really that way, but there's a lot of people who are. We want the right title. We want the recognition for our hard work. We've got to get the right credentials. We want to be affirmed and approved for the good job we're doing. Sometimes it's not, not, not the things we're doing that we want to, to be recognized for, our identity to be built in. We want the right relational identity. We want, I'll be happy when I'm married. I'll be happy when I'm a parent. I'll be happy when I'm a grandparent. Sometimes it's not relational identity. Sometimes it's, it's just honor from other people. Man, that's a, a never-ending chase. It's a never-ending pursuit. Because once we get that, we find out it's not fulfilling enough. And we have to keep chasing something else. Well, okay, it wasn't that. But maybe it'll be this next thing. That is a lie. We can rest in the identity that comes in being belonging to Christ. In Christ, our identity has been established by our faith in His work. We have been made who we are. There is no need any longer to pursue any other identity. We can rest in the one we've been given by Him. When God established the Sabbath in the law, He emphasized the identity of who the Jews were in relation to Him. Who they were in relation before He delivered them and who they were in relation after he says it in Deuteronomy 5:15 he says you shall remember that you are a slave in the land of Egypt who were they slaves and the lord your god brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm who are they today in Deuteronomy 5:15 they are a people who have been delivered no longer slaves therefore Because this is who you are. The Lord God commanded you to keep the Sabbath. Because you are God's. Because you are no longer slaves. Rest. This is the new identity that they have. And he's saying now rest in that. Romans 6.18. This this is applied to us. Having been set free from sin. We have become slaves of righteousness. We're no longer slaves of sin. We are slaves of righteousness. So rest. We are free to rest because we are no longer enslaved to sin. Ephesians 1 and 2. I use this in my discipleship all the time. If you ever come to me for biblical counsel or discipleship, you're going to go through Ephesians 1 and 2 because it is necessary for us to recognize the identity that we have been given in Christ. And Paul does such a masterful job of showing God's work to change you, to change who you are. Ephesians 1 and 2, he gives a long list. Let me just give you a few. We are no longer sinners. We are saints. We are chosen, predestined, forgiven, redeemed. We are no longer dead. We are alive. We aren't just citizens of the kingdom. We are children of the king. This is what he tells us. We, 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 we gain rest when we quit pursuing our own identity and rest in the identity that's been given us in Christ. You don't have to work to be his son. 
He said, you're his son. You don't have to work to be made righteous. He says, you're forgiven. You're redeemed. You're recipients of his grace. Rest in that. Rest in that new identity. And quit pursuing the ones the world would have you pursue. We rest in Christ by submitting to the authority of Christ. Resting in Christ is not all about just sitting back and kicking our feet up. Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30 says, Come to me. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. Is that anybody in this room? You labor, you're heavy laden. Come to me. I will give you rest. That is beautiful. Take my yoke upon you. We're not just sitting and doing nothing. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. He's carrying the weight. He's doing the work. And now the work he calls you to, the the teaching he gives you, the commands he calls you to follow are a joy. Let me just give you some. Serve one another. Jesus set the example in John 13 as he bent and he washed the the disciples' feet. Now he says, go and do the same. Galatians 5.13. Paul says, for you were called to freedom, brothers. Remember, we're no longer slaves. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Love one another. John 13, 34 is an example of that. John 15, 12 is another. This is my commandment. This is Jesus' words. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. This is the yoke. This is the burden that we now carry, having been given love from God, having been served by God. Now we just let that flow through us. We just become extensions. We become conduits of His work in our lives. Forgive one another. Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. It seems like big work. It seems like a terrible task to have to forgive somebody when they've wronged us. Until we stop and think about what God has forgiven us of. I'm the chief of all sinners, Paul said. And I would tell you, I think I'm competing with him for that title. Maybe we all are. Forgive one another. Submit to one another. Again, Paul, Ephesians 5.21, he's calling us to be filled with the Spirit, and he comes and says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submission is about giving up our own will and our own desires and our own selfish agendas for the good of other people. Submitting to one another. Gather together. Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews, chapter 10, verse 24 and 25, let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good work. Let's be encouraging to one another. Let's let's stir one one another up to these things. Let's encourage one another to this. Not neglecting to meet together. As is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Imagine a people so committed, so rested in God's identity through Christ, so rested in coming to Christ that they were conduits of His work. Imagine a people that would forgive and love and serve and gather. Imagine this people. That's the people that God has called us to be. Imagine how different it would be if a church would take on this identity and would rest in the submission to authority. Imagine We couldn't keep people out of here. We couldn't build buildings big enough to hold us all. This is, incidentally, this is, this is what your pastors are calling you to be. This is what we long for this church to be. 
And the reason I think it doesn't happen sometimes is that everyone is wanting someone else to be the one doing it. Because I'm just so tired. I need rest right now. So I'm going to go home and I'm, I'm going to watch some Netflix. But once I get rested, once I've taken my vacation, once I'm not so busy, then I'll join you in the work. But until then, brother, you keep up, you keep up the good job. That's not what God called us to. In fact, I think that's why we're so tired. As a Christian culture, I think that's why we're so stinking tired. Because Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. We will find our best rest when we are devoted to Him and His work. See, I think we're so stinking tired and exhausted all the time because we're looking for rest in all the wrong places. We're thinking that entertainment or leisure is going to do it when only Christ can. So we have to call people and command people in ways that we shouldn't have to. We're made to feel guilty because we ask you to prioritize things like the Lord's day and show up and gather with his people and encourage one another. When all we really want is for you to be encouraged and find rest. Taking a day off is not going to do it. Is there a place for leisure? Yes. Is there a place for entertainment? Yes. But not at the top of the list. Not as the source. We don't prioritize the Lord's day. We don't do the things that, that we do. We don't. We don't call you to things like the pastors have called you to in the letter that we provided in the bulletin because we want to give you a legalistic standard to live by. We call you to this because we know, by God's word, we know that this is where you find your rest. You find the joy that you so long for and you find the strength that you so desperately need and you find the encouragement that will make you able to, find, to face tomorrow. Brothers and sisters, this is the Sabbath that we have been given. And it starts in coming to Christ. All, not some, all who are weary and heavy laden, come to Him and He will give you rest. Well, I long for that. I long for that for myself. And I long for that for you. Will you come to Christ that you might rest? Let's pray. Father, what a gracious gift we have been given. <laughs> what a powerful grace to know. can lay down performance and the idolatry of approval and control and power. And we can rest in what you've given us in Christ. Thank you. Will you help us? Will you forgive us as we fail? Forgive us where we have failed? And strengthen us we might find our rest in you. I pray these things by the authority in Jesus' name, our Lord of the Sabbath. Amen.